there was mounting pressure both from the government officials and the neighborhood to convince people that they should donate the easements, mm -hmm. um, including threats that were reported in the media. Yep. You're selfish. How can you not help protect our property by donating yours? This is Infrastructure Junkies. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies, to your show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. The Infrastructure Junkies podcast is the voice of the right-of-way industry, exploring eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and infrastructure development. Welcome, Infrastructure Junkies. I'm Dave Arnold. And I'm Kristen Short-Bennett. And if you've been tuning in so far this season, you can see we've had a little bit of an emphasis on planetary and environmental issues so far. And we had a wonderful interview with Howard Mansfield and read his book, and he had a very good chapter about three days on a warming planet, which got us to thinking about this. And you can debate whatever you want. I don't care. You can make it as political as you want. I don't care. But we're in the midst of some climate change, some rising sea levels, and those two things will sometimes collide with property rights, as we've known them in the classic sense. We're getting bigger storms. The storms are getting more frequent. We're getting more flooding, more destruction. And although this episode isn't related to that, you're seeing droughts in the western part of the country, and we would like to address that at some point. And then we're having to deal with the economic effects of these storms, and local governments are struggling to adjust, and they're struggling to plan for the future. What we're going to do is talk today about a storm from about a decade ago, which came up the East Coast, inflicted incredible destruction on the state of New Jersey, and forced a lot of adjustment and pivoting in the aftermath. We're currently at the ALICLE National Eminent Domain Conference in Austin, and our guest today is a two-time speaker during this particular conference, and he gave two great presentations, and he's graciously agreed to come on the show with us today to talk about these things. It's Tony Delapelle. Or, Did or I say it right? Tony Delapelle. Tony Delapelle. If we're in Both Italy. right. Both oh, there right. You go. Okay. Depending on whether we're in Europe or not. That's right. right. He's we been learned on, that last time. Right. That's right. He was on the show last season. He's with he's a partner with the firm of McCurdy, Riskin, Olson, and Della Pelle in Morris Plains, New Jersey. He's a wonderful presenter and a nationally renowned, renowned attorney in property rights. So, Tony, thank you for making time for us to come back on the show. Well, thank you for having me back. I'm really excited to be here with you both in person. Yes, it's in, nice. Yeah, in person is always the best. So, we're going to talk about Hurricane Sandy and the aftermath. Let's just... We don't need to make that a surprise, but can you describe for the listeners kind of the geography of New Jersey and the shoreline and how it's laid out? Well, we have about 140 miles of shoreline. Much of it is Barrier Island, mm -hmm. and there are bays that are interior to the Barrier Island, but the northern half of the shore was the epicenter of Hurricane Sandy and where it came on land. So that had the worst experience and the most problems. It also happens to be the most heavily and densely populated part of the shore because yeah. it's the closest to New York City. And there are areas that were very, very significantly affected that are commuter towns to New York City. So they had a horrible experience, and Sandy really changed a lot about how the property rights were measured and handled going forward in perpetuity. And it's yeah. something that I think it's fair to say kind of dominated our practice in my firm for about 
six or seven years. We're just, we're just finishing up that work now. It's 10 years later. As you know, I live in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I've lived on the coast my entire life, grew up in Virginia Beach, and we kind of hold our breath when these storms come up the shore. And usually North Carolina protects us. Thank goodness for the Outer Banks. And I remember when Sandy was coming up the coast. And once the storm passes us, once a hurricane passes us and either goes to sea or whatever it does, we breathe a big sigh of relief and it passed us and we were fine. It looked like it was headed out and I forgot about it. And then I start hearing things on the news about this devastation and you don't associate destruction of hurricanes with the Northeast. And this turned out to be one of the most destructive storms of all times when it hit. Was the shore got hit hard from the storm surge and the, the flooding that it caused and the devastation to the property, particularly along the barrier island portions of the shore, inland, we got creamed. Mm-hmm. The, um, the amount of rainfall that came down and the winds that came with it created catastrophic flooding in the upland areas that then drain into the rivers that are in the lower areas. Mm-hmm. There are still areas where trees have, are uprooted 10 years later that haven't been brought back yet or, or taken away. Most of us lost power for weeks oh, in the state. You know, you think about the most densely populated state yeah. in the country, and most of it had no power for at least several days. And most of us were without power for about two weeks or more. Yeah. Um, so the flooding, the damage created by the wind, inland interior, was, in my view, probably more widespread in how many people suffered, what percentage of people suffered, than the, the strip of the property owners along the shore, which is what you saw on TV when houses and islands and bridges were washing away, which obviously I'm not trying to in any way diminish that, but there was a greater impact inland. Yeah. And it was, I want to just jump in here. It really was 10 years ago. It was October of 22, correct? October, I mean, October of two, 29th of 2012. 2012. Hi, not 22. 22. Yeah, I, that's what I wanted to do is I yeah. wanted to place this into context because later in the show, we're going to talk about how your firm's still been working on the aftermath of Sandy. Mm-hmm. This is 10 years ago. And the other thing, which is notable, is it was a late season hurricane. Right. And once things start cooling off, the storms tend to weaken, especially when they get up north. And that's why we, you know, breathe a sigh of relief when they pass us. And we think it's going to be okay. It might be a tropical storm or something like that. But it was anything but. It was a late storm. It's one of the ones uh, that stands out in my mind because of when it occurred. We usually see the risk of them and have seen them in August and September for the most part. You know, this is basically November when it occurred. Right. Right. Now, a lot of the listeners live on flyover states or live on the West Coast where they don't deal with hurricanes regularly. Can you describe the type of damage and destruction that the the storm inflicted? I mean, people think, well, I know what a tornado does, but I don't know what a hurricane does. Well, if uh, you had insufficient protection and you were uh, either an oceanfront property or near the ocean, there's a pretty good chance you suffered significant damage and in many cases complete devastation of residential properties. The ones that survived were properties for the most part that had a pre-existing storm protection system in place and or had been engineered to withstand storms. Years ago, if you went to the Jersey Shore, you would see a lot of cottages that were built on slabs and those have been replaced over the years so that most of the homes, in fact, any newer ones have to be elevated above Mm -hmm. the flood level, whatever it might be. So you would know if a house was old because it would be at grade or if it's a you know a newer one, most people park their cars under the houses these days because that they're able to and they get right. more space that way. Right. Uh, but practically it provides storm protection. And, and some of them, especially the people who had the larger homes, the newer custom homes, they were engineering significant improvements for storm protection into their homes where they were building houses with steel 
mm -hmm. um, instead mm -hmm. of sticks. So yeah. uh, concrete encased steel piles for homes, if you think about that. So those homes tended to do very well. And, and the thing which emanated from the storm, which became a focus of the work, was whether or not the storm protection systems on the beaches themselves, which consist of a berm and a dune mm -hmm. and plantings to hold the sand in place, whether they were adequate or not. And that's the project that the state partnered with the federal government on after Sandy to create a new system of dune and berm protection. So those who had better dune systems in place did better. Mm -hmm. um, and if you think about a sand dune, it's sand, right? And right. it has, has grass in it and has yeah. maybe some other things. And our Jersey style dunes are a lot of the towns will take Christmas trees at the end of the year and the garbage companies will take Christmas trees and deposit them in the winter at the base of the dunes. And then the wind brings sand and covers them. So they anchor the dunes what? and and those towns did really well because they had anchored dunes, oh, wow. not just regular ones yeah. because those uh, branches of the trees after the needles fall off of the Christmas trees, they hold the sand in and the wind oh, wow. doesn't make it move around as much, but, but dunes are living and they move. And they move with wind and they move with water. So they can erode and they can accrete just like anything else. So uh, we saw a lot of that experience. It was um, most evident on uh, what you saw on the news was the northern third of the Jersey Shore, the northern like 40 miles or so, which again, the most densely populated area, that was the area that suffered the most. And the data that we saw suggested that in that part of the shore, Hurricane Sandy could have been a one in 500 year storm. Wow. Not 100. Right. So I guess we'll never see another one like that, but you never know. Well, I, I got a feeling. See, you'll uh, see about that. Yeah. I know you're not a climatologist, but is your sense that this was, this storm was the result of climate change or was it just New Jersey's turn? I've lived through several hurricanes in my life and I've lived in New Jersey all of my life except four years of college. Mm -hmm. Some of them are pretty bad. And this was the worst as far as the tree damage and the power outages and the damage along the shore itself since 1962, which happens to be the year that I was born, mm -hmm. that washed away some very significant sections of barrier islands. And I've seen pictures of the devastation. I think that was probably similar in scope, but we weren't as densely populated, at least at the shore back then. So the gravity of the damage was greater because there was more building on these areas near the water or on the water in 2012 than there was in 1962. Wow. So let's talk a little bit about the governmental response to the storm. Um, you, you've sent us some really good information about what was going on in the aftermath. What, what did that look like? This was a week before presidential election. Oh my gosh, um, that's right. If I recall, when President Obama was running for re-election. And our state government follows the presidential election by a year. So our governor at that time, Governor Christie, he had a year left before his uh, re-election. He's a Jersey guy, born and bred, and spent many summers at the shore and cared about it. And he saw the devastation. He invited President Obama to come and, and see it, which they did together. And they uh, decided that the disaster recovery efforts for the storm would obviously include New Jersey because we may have been hit the hardest. I, I, there are areas of... Uh, New York, that got hit hard as well, mm -hmm. but we got some accommodations made for us. And there was basically a series of agreements that were entered into between our state government and the federal government to provide for disaster relief aid, which included not only money and other options for people to help finance things and to get money for themselves, but to actually provide storm protection 
So there were a series of agreements that were entered into, which provided that the federal government through the Army Corps of Engineers would come in and build this new engineered dune system, provided that the state would acquire the right of way that was needed to do that. And one of the things that a lot of people who are not from our state may not have known, they still may not know. Before this event or series of events, much of the Jersey Shore had private beach ownership. There are areas, if you go to the boardwalk in mm-hmm. Atlantic City or Seaside Heights or Asbury Park, the cities own those, those beaches. But where you did see private homes on the ocean, for the most part, in much of the shore, those folks owned the land to at least the mean high water line. And in some cases, they even own the riparian rights. So, really? uh, you know, without getting too much into the legal mumbo jumbo, what it meant was that if you owned a home on the ocean, you had a private beach. You had to allow people to use the water because the water is owned by the public mm-hmm. under something called the public trust doctrine. So that would mean people could swim on the, in the ocean in front of your house and they could get in and out of the water and walk along that strip of sand that could be dry uh-huh. sand, right? Uh-huh. Even at high tide, they can come on your beach and walk. You can't kick them because, off. Because let me get this clear. So the property line goes to where the high tide hits. Is that the right? The mean high water line, right, which changes. Okay. Right. Wow. Okay. Right. Everyone has the right to use tidal waters because they are held in the public trust for the benefit of the public. So if I own oceanfront property and it's privately owned to the high tide line, you can swim on the beach in front of my house and you can get in and out. You can even sit on that beach, put a towel out and sit there. But if you come too far in, that's my property. I and can you're kick trespassing. You off. I can kick you off. Wow. You know, and the town can't regulate what I do on it because it's my private property. This is going to become an even more important topic as our conversation progresses today. But I want to make a point. That concept of the private beaches... I understand you to say it occurs in New Jersey, but it doesn't occur everywhere. In Virginia, the beaches are public. Sure. All the beaches are public unless they're owned by the federal government or the Navy. Right. Many states are like that, and I think most are, but we had this historic form of property ownership in our state yeah. that allowed the continuation of those private beach rights for many people. Okay. So if you take the, let's just look at that. 40 miles or so of shore that was most affected by Sandy, which is the northern third of it, let's call it. Mm-hmm. Okay. I don't know if it was half of it or a third of it, but there was a significant percentage of the property there that had private beach rights. And much of it was, as I've described, single-family homes where I have a half-acre lot and maybe I have a, a very nice home on it that is you know, three or 4,000 square feet that might occupy 10,000 square feet a lot. The other 10,000 feet... Sometimes it's underwater, sometimes it's not, but there's an area of that that's mine and it's my beach. And right. I, I can kick you off if you come on it. And the cops will chase you off because it's mine. And that's the way it was. There were also a series of other types of properties. It's very common, at least in our state, to have association-owned beaches so that oh. whether they be single-family homes or in some cases some multifamily uh, properties where you own, a, a let's call it a condominium interest okay. in your unit, whether it be a freestanding structure or an attached structure, and then you own a percentage interest in the beach that the association owns, and that's also private. And wow. some of those associations didn't allow the public, and some did. They, they would sell beach badges and make money and pay for the expenses with it, but they were still privately owned and controlled at least before Sandy came and the new deals were put into place. Okay, so in the aftermath of Sandy, they get these ideas where they recognize that the properties which had more established dune systems fared better. And so they want to acquire easements to either replenish dunes or create new dunes or both? Both. Okay, they weren't going to be these little humps. They were going to be, in in some cases, like 22 feet high. The engineered design was a 22-foot high structure everywhere except where there was a, a boardwalk. 
Uh, mm. They had different types of measures. And if there were street ends, because sometimes the streets are perpendicular to the ocean, the street ends in some cases weren't 22 feet high, but everything else was supposed to be consistent 22 foot in height. And the width, I believe, from toe to toe was 75 feet. So if they were 75 feet wide and 22 feet high when they were built, that was the only time they ever worked because they change. Right. Mm -hmm. But at least they were designed like a cookie cutter on the day that they were built. And they were not uniform like that before Sandy. Some people, including people that I have represented, had dunes that were bigger mm -hmm. than what the Army Corps wanted to put there. We had one client with 25 or 27 foot high dunes already. So. Oh, wow. So in the aftermath of Sandy, this is a major infrastructure project. It is. The plans. And, yes. and the dunes were to be constructed on private property? Correct. Using federal monies? Yeah, the formula. Government money. Government yes. money. It involved participation by the state government and the federal government financially. How were they going to come onto private property to do this work? Well, that's where the right-of-way <laughs> professions, professionals come in, right? That's the point of the podcast, right? There you <laughs> go. That's right. And it opened some eyes because there were people that didn't realize that they didn't already have the right to use a lot of those beaches yeah. because they were privately owned. So we're talking about building a dune system, creating one or adding to it, and you're going to do this with an easement. So... As you've said, dunes are a living thing. They move around. Sand moves them. Water moves them. What happens if you get an easement on my my beach to build a dune and then it moves around? Is it perpetual? Are you coming? Yes. Are they maintaining it? Is there money to maintain it? <laughs> Sorry, that was a lot of questions. Great, at once. all great questions too, Kristen. So the formula is dependent upon the engineers of the Army Corps, and they have people who study what the likely scenarios are for the erosion in the future for each area. Mm -hmm. And it differs. I think, I think it might have to do with how it faces, you know, uh, geographically and where it is in, in the tidal influence and whether it's an area that naturally accretes or not. But so uh, they will study it and they, they wrote up a bunch of reports years ago. I mean, these were thousands and thousands of pages of documents and data that existed well before Hurricane Sandy. Sure. And the projects were already on the books to do, mm. but the impetus for them hadn't yet occurred because there was no funding. Sandy, created funding because of the disaster relief mechanisms that were approved by Congress that allowed this project and others like it to get kickstarted. Yeah, but. <laughs> There's always a yeah, but. Yeah, but. And I read this in some materials you sent me. Is in every right-of-way project I've ever been associated with, there is a cost for acquiring the right-of-way. Even in, in, in road cases where we're acquiring a temporary construction easement, where they're just going to stage some materials for a year, there's a cost associated with that. And I understand, I want to hear your comment on this, that there was no funding for right-of-way for these projects. The obligation under the agreements between the state and the federal government to do the project for acquiring right-of-way was upon the state of New Jersey. The state did not have a line item or right-of-way that had a dollar in it, at least as far as I could tell, and I studied this stuff pretty hard. There is a $25 million year budget for storm protection in New Jersey that is funded by our, we have something called real estate transfer tax, so if I sell my property to you, mm -hmm. I have to kind of pay a sales tax on that, mm -hmm. and it funds a lot of things. In part, some of that money will go and make this $25 million a year kitty mm -hmm. that's used for things. That was already committed, and the money for that had already been spent every year, okay? But there wasn't a line item for right-of-way acquisition that said it's going to cost us this much money. Okay. Zero. 
So, <laughs> so, so let me get this straight. What they're planning to do is they're going to acquire easements from private property owners, probably 99% of which are wealthy and have resources and have their own lawyers and are sophisticated. They're going to acquire easements to construct a 22-foot dune on private property, which some landowners probably wanted to throw them a party and others maybe not, but they didn't have any money to acquire the easement. Then how how are they going to do it? I'm not really sure what their thinking was because I wasn't in the room, but I can tell you what happened. And there were some property owners who wanted this because they mm-hmm. felt they needed it and they might have lost their home. And they, mm-hmm. they thought, okay, I want to build a new one and I'll take the government's sand. Right? Sure. It, might, it might be good for me. It might actually protect me from the next storm. So quite a few actually donated voluntarily the easements. Mm-hmm. There was a period of time, I believe it probably started in early 2013 and probably ran until uh, around 2015 when the first condemnation cases were filed for the project where there was mounting pressure both from the government officials and the neighborhood to convince people that they should donate the easements, Mm -hmm. um, including threats that were reported in the media. Yep. You're selfish. How can you not help protect our property by donating yours? This episode of Infrastructure Junkies is proudly brought to you by my company, Blackbird Right-of-Way. We specialize in relocation assistance services nationwide. From one parcel to 100, let Blackbird handle your relocation challenges. You can find out more about us at our website. It's blackbirdrow.com. That's blackbirdrow.com. Robert Thomas here. I'm one of the planning chairs for the National Eminent Domain and Land Valuation Conference coming at you live from Austin, Texas, where we're in the midst of the 40th edition of the conference. I'd like to invite you to join us for the 41st edition of the conference, now set for February 1 through February 3, 2024, at the JW Marriott in New Orleans. Yes, please join us at this time next year in New Orleans for two and a half days of programs devoted to right away, condemnation, appraisal, and all of the topics we in the industry love. This program is designed for lawyers, appraisers, policymakers and planners, right-of-way professionals, and others in the industry. So please, I'm inviting you to come join us in New Orleans, February 1 through February 3, 2024, for the American Law Institute CLE Eminent Domain and Land Valuation Litigation Conference. Well, let's read the quotes. I got it right here. We got several quotes from Chris Christie during this period where, to put it into context, I understand, as you said, some people had donated because they didn't sell the easement because there wasn't any money. They donated. And then there were some that, for whatever reason, and it's not my business to ask them why, said we're not going to donate it. Maybe they didn't want the dune. Maybe they wanted money. I don't know. But they weren't going to donate it. And your governor, your governor at that time, his response was... He said... I read this and I couldn't, my head fell off. We're going to start calling these folks out in the next few weeks if they haven't signed the easements to let us build the dunes because they need to be called out and they need to be told that there is something more important than their own self-interests. That is a direct quote 
uh, that he said during a town hall style event in Middlesex Borough. And, and then he goes on to say, I'm not going to put up with people that decide their view of the Atlantic Ocean is more important than the lives and the properties of their neighbors. I can get on board a little bit with that, but I don't well, like the tone and I don't, well, as a right away professional, I don't like the tone and I don't like the technique. I don't like any of it. I read this and thought, well, what the heck? If you're saying it's for the public good, isn't this an eminent domain issue? And he said there was a, a resident who asked Christie during an event, why hadn't he ruled out the use of eminent domain? Chris Christie said he wanted to avoid the lengthy legal process. So he wants he wants everybody to give the land up or give up the give the easements up with no money and is going to shame and bully them if they don't. And then what I read in that last little bit is he's too lazy to go through the process of eminent domain. Well, I sorry, that's what it feels like to me. I'm I, a little I didn't I'm like a, it. I'm a little more sympathetic with Governor Christie. I don't like his technique. That's not the way I think you get this done. But Tony, we can argue back and forth later, but <laughs> You're the one who lived through this front seat. What was your response to the government's approach, specifically the governor's approach? What, what I will say, just to start, is that the quotes that you read were a sampling of things that were said by a lot of different government officials. Mm-hmm. Okay, it wasn't just our governor. It were a variety of different mayors that came out in those towns. And neighbors actually came out and made statements that were reported in the media against their neighbors. Yeah. So I found it really troubling because to me, having at that point been doing this stuff for about 25 years, I had never really come across a situation where the property owner who was in the way of the public project was being vilified essentially because they owned that property. And all they really wanted was one of two things as it was borne out. Either they felt that they didn't need the government's help. If you do the research, you'll see there were about, I think about 2,000 properties that easements were needed, and I think about 200 of them didn't give them. Mm -hmm. So there were about 200 takings, and of those, most of those folks, not all, but most of them had pretty darn good storm protection in place already, and and most of them had very little damage. There were some that had damage, Mm -hmm. and because of the consequences of the taking, they just said, hey, I can take care of my own property. Don't worry about it. They either wanted to tell the government, we'll take care of it ourselves, okay? And if you want to put special zoning in that makes us do it to enforce it and fine us if we don't, that's fine. You know, think about someone who has a $10 million second or third home, mm-hmm. okay? They are probably going to take whatever measures they need to undertake to protect their property because of, of its value and their ability to do that because they have the wherewithal to do that, right? And the resources. That's and the right. Resources. So, but, but the other part of it was that even if the government had the right to take the property, they felt that they had the right to be compensated for that. And, and there was a mention in the, one of the quotes that you just read about the views. I don't remember that any of my cases that we litigated involved loss of view claims. They might have. There might have been one or two. Sure. But if you think about it, if you already had storm protection and that's why you didn't have damage during sand, you would have had a dune. Right. <laughs> and you probably, if you had a porch on your first floor, either your first floor was elevated so high because of the way it was built and you could see over the dune or you couldn't see it already. Right. The extra two feet that they added wasn't going to change your view that much. Now, we did have some who might have made a claim, but this wasn't about that. Those folks who had more to say than stay away, don't take my property at all, I can take care of myself, and I'll even protect my neighbor. Sure. Were people that basically said that you took my 
beautiful home that I bought and built with my hard-earned money because I had the exclusive rights to a private beach, and now my home is on a public beach. And if you're going to take it, I'm entitled to be paid for the difference in value, and that's what the cases became about. You said, yeah, that these easements effectively make it a public beach. Why is that? I mean, I think I used to buy pipeline easements. It didn't make everybody's backyard a public park. Why does that make the beach a public beach, effectively? Um, we were told that the Army Corps required it as a condition of ah. pumping the sand to building the project, but I never found a single document that said that. It's my wow. understanding that that was a policy decision that was made at the state level, that it gave an impetus to the governments to be able to take private beach and make it public because they had this project waiting and now it was funded. Mm. Interestingly, we had other uh, beach easement cases in the office before Sandy because the southern portions of the shore had been part of these other replenishment projects in the past with the Army Corps partnering with the state government. And in those, the federal government didn't require that the private beaches become public. Mm -hmm. They just they just required access to come on sure. the private property to build the dune and to come back and maintain it. But they didn't say that the private property had to become public. Well, and if the private property is becoming public, isn't that more than an easement at that point? Well, you're arguing my side of the case now, Kristen. Well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Neither are you, Kristen. Well, I, Tony, let me put on my appraiser hat, which I don't have one because I'm not an appraiser, but I sometimes play you can one imagine on this podcast. Like there you go. So if this were being done the way I'm accustomed to it, the government is going to come through, probably the state is going to come through and acquire an, a, um, a dune easement. I don't even know if that exists, but a dune easement. It's going to entail building up 20 feet of sand, probably planting native grasses on it. And if New Jersey's like Virginia, you can't walk on the dunes. You can't do anything on the dunes at all. I used to drink beer on the dunes when I was in uh, college, but that's neither here nor there. But you're not supposed to be on the dunes. And so... If we're doing this the way I'm accustomed to it being done, the government is going to acquire an easement that probably is going to, you know, usually you take an easement and you figure out the value. This value is probably 100 bucks a foot or something like that, maybe higher. And an easement would generally be 40 or 50%. I'd say this is a 95% easement. So you're going to pay somebody, if it's done normally, almost 100% of the value of that property. Then you're going to make a determination of whether there are any damages to the remainder of the property. And what I had always thought when I was reading through your materials is some people would claim, hey, I've lost my view because of this 20-foot dune. The differing view to me is that other people may take the position, you've enhanced my property because you've protected it. But I'm hearing you say something completely different, which makes more sense to me, is that you have damaged my property not because of my view and regardless of any enhancement by protecting it, you've taken a private beach, which doesn't even exist in some states, and you've made it public. That's the, the real all, damage. All those things you said are, are true. The fact that the taking may change the beach from a private one to public is something that has to be at least measured and evaluated. And if there's a difference in value, the Constitution requires that people should be paid for that loss, right? The loss of view, if there is one, again, that's a severance damage or an impact, should be measured, quantified, and could be part of compensation. There were other things. The access onto and off the beach could change. Mm -hmm. We found that the private walkways that folks had, some of them were just at grade and they would have these little wooden slats like snow fencing or they put out a Moby mat which rolled out. Others actually built structures through the dunes. Some of those got changed. Okay, uh, and some of them had to be modified in some ways, but they got to cross that new dune 
to get to and from the beach mm -hmm. after the project was built, but it wasn't their beach anymore. I want to talk to you about how this turned into litigation, but before we do that, let's sidestep this for a second. And Kristen and I are going to see a guy who's probably very close to your neck of the woods, Bruce Springsteen, in concert uh, next Friday. And by the time this airs, we will have already seen him. And I know, given your high-profile nature of your career, you're probably personal friends with the boss. Can you get us backstage? Yeah, can you, we can just, you call We him? just want backstage, pa get backstage your wife, passes. Get your wife like, to call Patty it. or something. And no, I know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy who knows uh -huh. a guy. the most Jersey thing I've ever heard. <laughs> but uh, my wife knows Max. Oh, really? Drama, really? But I don't. So, Dang. Um, and uh, yeah, he's from the shore. Yeah. yeah. And I'm a North Jersey guy, so... I'm glad you're seeing him, and I hope you enjoy. He's an amazing performer. What do you think of him? Is, were you a, were you a Springsteen guy, or were you one of these people? I was went, eh. more of a, a Southside Johnny guy who was a disciple of Springsteen because yeah. of the horns that were in his music um, oh. and still are. And I like Bruce a lot, and I've seen him in concert. I think he's the best live performer I've ever seen. Right. So I enjoy his music, but yeah. it wasn't my first choice growing up. And my wife is a Springsteen fanatic, so I would. You know, we've been together 42 years, so I've all tailed along to quite a few Springsteen concerts with her, and I really enjoy them. Well, this so, is my first, and I'm very excited about it. I think it. you'll enjoy it. He's still really cranking it out. He's and, 73. Uh, yeah, he's, he's 73. He's got the energy of a 37-year-old. Yeah. So. Well, we saw a review about the first concert of this tour, and apparently he's touring with like 17 musicians, like yeah. backup singers and strings and all kinds of stuff, but rave reviews, and apparently a pretty good set list of which I know about my, my, 30 I, I, songs. We'll get back to sand in a minute, but... Um, my favorite Springsteen experience, I was fortunate years ago to be on the board of an entity called the New Jersey Hall of Fame. It's a really cool nonprofit, actually. And mm -hmm. the first year that it was created, we inducted the people you might think about, you know, Frank Sinatra, Bruce Springsteen, Thomas Edison, you know, Snooki? Yogi Berra. No. Oh. Um, and so Bruce is there, <laughs> and, and he performed. No and way! And it was about 12 feet away from him. And oh. then three years later, I guess— we inducted Danny DeVito, oh. and he insisted that Bruce induct him. After that, they played Glory Days together with Danny. Danny really? DeVito played Glory oh, Days that's with great. Bruce. So it was a lot of fun. In a small venue with like oh, you know, how a thousand cool. people. It was a lot of fun. Very that, cool. I've started listening to Rob Lowe's podcast, and, and Rob Lowe is a huge Bruce Springsteen fan, just a huge fan. And he says one time he, he was talking to Bruce somewhere, and, and Bruce made the comment, you know, Rob, when I'm not on stage doing my thing, I'm just occupying space on this planet. <laughs> Something oh to gosh. that effect. He lives to perform on stage, oh. which is why he plays for three and a half hours. I can't amazing, wait. Amazing my, talent. Just a funny little side note. My parents listen to this podcast. Mom, I'm going to call you out. She asked me yesterday. She said, hey, when are you and Dave going to go see um, that um, Rick Springfield? <laughs> I was like, okay, <laughs> oh mom. Nikki. No. Bad. 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 <laughs> All right, Tony, back to important right-of-way stuff. Explain to us in simplest terms how this situation turned into litigation. And I understand you were involved, or you still are involved. I am, yeah. Well, it started before the new takings were filed because there was one of those older cases pending that involved some property on a barrier island called Long Beach Island, which is just south of where the epicenter was for Sandy. It's like the central part of the Jersey Shore. There was a beach replenishment case there that involved a home, single-family home, where the owner had gone to trial and said that the value of that home was diminished because the new dunes were built, and it was a view-loss case. Ah. And they awarded, I believe it was about 10% of the value of the home, so it was a $4 million home, and they got Ooh. about $400,000. The town was the condemning agency back then. 
They appealed the verdict. While the case was on appeal, Hurricane Sandy hit. Oh, and wow. And the case after Sandy, a petition for certification was granted for leave to take the case up to the state Supreme Court because you don't get to go automatically there. And the state intervened, essentially, and took over the case after Hurricane Sandy. The reason why they did that, as it turned out, was that uh, you mentioned earlier, Dave, that you should be able to consider whether the taking of some of your property causes any benefits to the rest of it. Right. Well, our law prior to this case didn't really allow that to occur unless they were very called special benefits. And it made it much harder for the benefits to be charged against the damages and reduce the amount of money that the compensation would arrive at, the compensation total. So the state took over the case and they won. And the Supreme Court changed the law. It had been around for about 200 years. And essentially what it, what it said, the case was decided in the summer of 13, so about eight months or nine months after Sandy, that any reasonably calculable detriment or benefits that are caused to a property by taking can be taken into account in affixing the amount of just compensation. So it wiped out the special benefits doctrine. And that allowed the state, when it came in, to do the acquisitions for the post-Sandy dune easements or storm damage reduction easements is what they were actually called. Uh -huh. It allowed them to consider the benefits. And wouldn't you know, in almost every case, the amount of benefit outweighed the damage by hundreds of thousands of dollars. So everybody got a $500 or $1,000 offer, a nominal. I have one. The, actually, the case I'm going to be, uh, I, I believe I'm going to be trying next week. There was an offer of $6,300 because they said that there was a boardwalk structure that accessed the property and it would cost that much to rebuild it. And they gave us that. You know, if you had a $2 million house, it was worth 10 or 15% more because of this new storm protection. Therefore, even if you suffered 10% damages, if you got 10% of benefits, you're owed nothing. And every single one of these cases that got filed, there was that claim and that was the formula that was used. If they hadn't used that formula and, and had, what is the state, the federal rule? I get those confused. But if they hadn't used that formula and instead of considering the benefit to the property, would it have gone more smoothly? Like, was it an issue of money? Was it the money? I will tell you that most of the people that we ended up representing, it wasn't about the money. Yeah. It's unfortunate because that's the way that they were portrayed. Um, right. Whether they had a $4 million house and got two hundred dollars or $400,000 wasn't going to change their lives. What they did was they bought a private beach. Okay. They don't have it anymore. Okay. And they changed it. So that's why they fought. But having that big old dune in front of your big fancy house might mean that you still have a big fancy house after the next Hurricane Sandy. Agreed. Right. But most of them had that big old dune already and they paid for that sand and took care of it themselves. And that's why their house they stayed. put their Christmas trees in there. Well, sometimes. <laughs> the, the case that you have coming up, I think you said they received a $6,300 offer. What's your evidence going to show? Our value, um, value, our value is a million nine. Wow. It's a 2.5 acre beach oh, that wow. supports a 22 acre single family home association. Yeah. And the taking is only the beach parcel. So we know what the land is worth and we're valuing the part taken mm -hmm. and have some pretty strong evidence of value. It's interesting that you said that the easement sounds like it could be 95% of the bundle of rights. And that's how we look at these things. You know, the easements can be very intrusive and they might not be intrusive. This right, one, right. there's really nothing that you get left other than the right to cross it for your own use mm -hmm. and the right to pay taxes on it. Right. Um, <laughs> that's about it. So, yeah. Yeah. Do you feeling good about it? You must be if you're going to go to trial. You never lose, right? You know, every once in a while, everybody loses, Dave. 
I know. I know. Everybody does, and it's very humbling, but um, I can't wait to hear the outcome of this particular one. So It's an eight-year-old case. That's wow. unfortunate that the case was filed in 2015, and we're just going to trial in 2023. So. Wow. Well, one of the things I wanted to cover here is we've got almost a critical situation up and down the coasts as far as rising sea levels or increasing storms that are, which are increasing in severity. And I keep hearing more and more that, you know, land that we once doc, once occupied, ultimately we're going to have to, we're going to have to abandon it, move in. Where do we draw the line? At what point is, does this become a, a you know, public interest pol- exercise of police power or whatever the case may be versus somebody can, as Chris Christie would say, selfishly hold on to their property and keep it in whatever condition they want at the expense of the rest of us a little further inland. Do you have any opinions on where we draw that line? Well, I'm not sure if there's a line that you can draw because I think they're really hard issues. Um, you know, we, we along the coasts, we're, we're dealing with this now more than we used to. People in the central part of the country dealing with floods forever, the farmers, right? And they buy bio programs for their lands that were built because what you know, years ago, if you had to irrigate your crops, you needed to be near a river, mm-hmm. right? And 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 then there was a flood, and it wiped you out. And then the government bought you out because you kept getting flooded. So I don't think this is really anything new. And I'm I'm not in any way trying to suggest that climate change isn't creating impacts and, and isn't real and shouldn't be addressed in some ways. And I, how I don't know. It's way above my pay grade. But the bottom line to me is that whether it was right or wrong for governmental authorities that had the ability to allow people to occupy and use and develop property in the first place, it happened. Right. And if they own it and something has to happen to that private property for the good of the public, so be it, right? The law allows that as long as you satisfy the limitations that the constitution places on the government's power to uh, as you, I think you might have been in the session earlier today where they cited the Armstrong case where it talks about how the person whose property is taken so that the public can benefit shouldn't have to bear the loss. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a really powerful statement if you think about that. That's what the whole concept of eminent domain is supposed to achieve. Right. That if it's for the good of everybody, everybody's got to kick in and, right. and pay. Whether it comes through new taxes or some other means, I don't know. That's what the elected <laughs> officials do. So if I, you know, I own a house on the Jersey Shore and I paid for it, whatever I paid, and it was privately owned, and now I've got this publicly laden portion of it on the part that mattered the most to me, and it changed the value, I shouldn't have to pay for that. Right. The public should pay for that. Yeah. Okay. And and it, it it's the same everywhere around the country, whether it's a, a you know a flooding case or it's down in Louisiana with the Mississippi River and. You know, they have, uh, they've undertaken projects there forever. So I just think it's another manifestation of how the government can use its powers and it shows where some of the limits are. Yeah. I guess what you're saying, to put it in the simplest of terms, is if you have a, an oceanfront home, if Tony has an oceanfront home. Which I don't, by the way, but <laughs> if I did. Go ahead. <laughs> okay, but if you did and I needed the government to take your home in order to protect mine a half mile in, then we all should pay for it. Right. And as opposed to you bearing the cost. Right. Well, it, just look, look at it this home. way. If my house was on the ocean and it was worth $4 million and we could prove that and the government needed to take the whole thing, mm-hmm. 
because they needed to build a sand dune on it to protect your house, which was a couple thousand yards in, wouldn't I still get my $4 million? Yeah. I, I think I would. I think yeah. it's easier for people to understand that, but just to show <laughs> sure. yeah. right? You got to really dumb it you, down for me. You're taking Tony. my property mm -hmm. to protect you. Yeah. Okay. I should get paid. And if you're taking my whole property and it's worth 4 million, I should get 4 million. Even if it's benefiting you, how can it benefit me if you're taking the whole thing? Right. Right. Oh, so yeah. now let's, let's break it down. You're going to take uh -huh. some of it. Okay. So I'm not going to get 4 million because I still have some of it left. Is what's left being benefited by what you're doing or is it being harmed? And let's weigh the scales, right? The law now, at least as has been uh, created in my state since 2013 because of this Supreme Court case, it allows you to do that and let's figure it out. And that's all I'm asking for my clients. You know, with the case, I only tried one of these cases. I had about 75 of the 150 that ended up going to court and I won it. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. This will be number two. The rest of them, we, we settled quite a few of them during the pandemic, but right. I look at it that way. And if I can help in a court case, prove that either there are no measurable benefits that are reasonably calculable, which is what the law says it has to be, that increase the value of my property. It's not just that a 23-foot dune is better than a 19-foot. You have to prove that it makes it more valuable right? in order to come in. Yeah. Okay? And people didn't pay more. Right. In fact, we have evidence that people might have paid less because they lost their exclusive rights. Right. So that's what it's about. And uh, at the end of the day... I don't think that um, at least a majority of the people who fought this were fighting for the money. Right. But at the end of the day, that's all we have left. Right. And that's the way that we're supposed to go through that exercise. And, and I haven't seen one yet that's gone that far where the benefits are greater, the provable, the reasonably calculable benefits are greater than the harm that's been caused because the ones that have gotten that far already had protection. Now, Maybe there is a case out there that I didn't know about or uh, that they needed it and they could prove that there was a benefit, but I haven't seen any data, which is what's supposed to be the bread and butter of evaluation of property based upon a comparable sales appraisal, which is what all these were. I haven't seen any data that shows that people pay more for property that is on an ocean that has a publicly engineered sand dune system than they would for one that had a private dune. Right. Fair. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I haven't seen it. Yeah. I would be delighted to hear what happens next week. Well, I hope it's good news. Yeah. I hope so too. Yeah. If it's good news, let us know. If it's bad news, we'll pretend like we never talked about it. <laughs> All right, Tony, this has been a great discussion. It's fascinating to me. I appreciate you lending us your insight and expertise as always. It's been great seeing you in person here in where are we? We're in Austin. <laughs> Icy Austin. Icy Austin. Austin. Yes. We Where are until in Austin, yesterday, Texas. it was 10 degrees warmer in New York and New Jersey than it was here. So right. It was February. crazy. Right. It, was, it crazy. was crazy. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. It was great to have you in person. I was I hope thrilled you'll... to be here and I really appreciate the opportunity to visit with you both. So come right. back sometime. It'd be great. Kristen Bennett and I sure hope that you're enjoying this episode. Please check out our new website at infrastructurejunkies.com. That's infrastructurejunkies.com. While you're there, please sign up for our mailing list. Also, follow us on the Twitters at IJPod, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and we're even on TikTok. You can find us anywhere. Thanks for listening.